0: Hello listeners, Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Happy New Year. We hope you had a restful holiday season. On our end, we're excited to be back with brand new Dr. GPCR podcast episodes. Before we dive into this episode, we are excited to launch the Dr. GPCR University program with the goal of providing courses and content on all aspects of GPCR research to support our community. To kick off this new initiative, we partnered with Dr. Terry Kinakin, who will be teaching a course entitled Applying Pharmacology to Drug Discovery starting February 8th. The course will be held every Thursday through February 29th, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Spots are limited to 20 in total, and the deadline to register ends on February 1st. If you register and join us, you'll get four live Zoom sessions with one hour lectures and 30 minute q each time, a 30 minute one-on-one meeting with Dr. Kanakin according to his availability, access to the cohorts group in the Dr. GPCR ecosystem where you can find Dr. Kanakin himself and your classmates. You'll get access to the course materials and recordings. You'll get a completion certificate signed by Dr. GPCR and Dr. Kanakin. And if you'd like to take advantage of this, we're also giving you a one-year Dr. GPCR Ecosystem Premium Membership, which is a $250 saving, which gives you access to the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem contents and perks, including our forums, private groups, and to all ecosystem members. And this way, you can revisit the course contents at any time and take advantage of visiting the other course contents later on. To get more information and register for the course, join the ecosystem today for free. What are you doing April 22nd and 23rd? Join us for the inaugural Endocrine Metabolic GPCRs meeting taking place in Birmingham in the UK. This This event will bring together scientists from both academia and industry to exchange data, technologies, and ideas in the field of GPCRs in the context of endocrine and metabolic receptors. We have a special offer for the Dr. GPCR community. Visit our website to get more information. The key topics covered at this meeting will be the latest GPCR signaling methodologies, metabolite sensing GPCR biology, and novel endocrine mediators and GPCR activation structures. This meeting is organized and we're partnering with Biospecifica to bring you this meeting. This meeting is also endorsed by the Society of Endocrinology. Mark your calendars again for the next season of the Dr. GPCR Symposia and mark your calendars for our first event of the year, which is March 15. This first symposium will cover the topic of GPCR activation and signaling. We will have talks and we will also be accommodating posters on Zoom in breakout rooms. So stay tuned. If you'd like to give a talk at any of our events, or if you'd like to be my guest on the Dr. GPCR podcast, please email us at hello at drgbcr.com. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and I'm very excited to have with me Dr. Alex Roux. And I did it right this time. Hi, Alex. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. I'm happy how, are you
0: to be. how are you doing today?
1: I'm I'm very good at the end of the day, I'm about to go in the weekend. So uh, can it be better?
0: <laughs> exciting. Exciting. And thank you for, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, before we hit record, we were just talking about um how fun we how much fun we had on the um Dr. GPCR monthly newsletter video edition. Mm-hmm. So this is a part two kind of or repeat, yeah. and this time we get to focus on you. So Alex, please introduce yourself.
1: So my name is Alex Wu. Uh, I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan Life Sciences Institute. I am in the lab of Roger Cohn. He is a big melanocortin guy. Uh, He's the one that cloned it. And I'm actually working on melanocortin now. Uh, But I'm still uh, grabbing onto uh, my favorite accessory protein to GPCR.
0: (laughs) <laughs> oh great. And how did you end up in in the position that you're in today?
1: Uh so are we starting from the beginning or yes. just okay.
0: No, no, go back, go back or wherever you want to start, I will take you back <laughs> if <It> need be.
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, I've always been passionate about science. Uh, when I was little, I remember we uh, I have my best friend that's now in Canada, uh, Romain Vido. He was uh I was very very like we were entertaining ourselves with microbiology at first. Uh, her his parents bought him a small microscope that you couldn't see anything through it, but you could see some amebs, amoeboids, and uh, other like small organisms. Couldn't go down to micro uh microbes, but we could see like a little bit of microbiology life. It was very very nice, and from there um. I always knew that I wanted to be a scientist of some sort. I had no idea what kind of scientist I wanted to be. And we had this great uh, path to science in France. It is a technical training. Um, I don't know the equivalent that would be in the US, but uh, what's right, oh, it's high school actually. It's during high school. It's a technical training during high school. Uh, that allows you to experience in the lab. We did a lot of biochemistry, microbiology, uh, molecular biology too, actually.
0: That young, well, that young, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that was, was, I mean, that was the basic, right? Uh, We were doing, what was my favorite part in this training was actually the microbiology because they were giving you a uh, um, bacteria and you didn't know what it was. And you had to uh, see plates and medium uh, and have to figure it out what kind of bacteria it was. So you had to do the grams, uh, check mm-hmm. the, whether it was negative or positive. It was very nice, uh, very nice, like education. We, it was like mini investigation on microbiology. It was super cool. Um, so I did this through high school and then uh, I went to the university. Uh, and it got interesting around uh, the equivalent of Master Two, uh, Master One in the US, and mm-hmm. so I had to do an internship in uh, a research lab. Uh, I did my internship. Uh, so the, the college I went to was uh, Bretagne Occidentale. I don't know how to translate that in English.
0: <laughs> I don't know. But anyone who wants to figure it out, I think they can try and Google it. Although it's going to be difficult to, to write it down.
1: It's, the anagram is UBO. Uh, OK. And so I went through. The, um, uh i had to do an internship there and i chose a uh, a research lab a fundamental research lab um uh, and i ended up not being on fundamental at all and having to work on uh, it was a compound they were developing for a skincare product i think mm-hmm. and but yeah. I, I it was awesome because on the morning they we were doing um uh abdominal surgery and then in the afternoon we had the the, the layer of fat and uh, skin and we were extracting keratinocytes from the skin grab that the, that we, we took on the morning it was very fun uh, to do and uh and then th- during that time I actually met uh someone else uh, from another unit I was a smoker at the time uh reformed <laughs> and, and it's
0: on record now
1: <laughs> yeah oh definitely and um I was smoking uh, at, at the bottom of the the, the building and there was the, this guy that I didn't know back in the day and he was the director of another unit and we ended up you know talking a lot and at some point he asked me what I wanted to do and I'm like I don't know probably I want to go to into research uh, and do a PhD and he recommend me recommended me to one of his friends I thought he was a student at the time he was actually never a student they were friends together and it was Julian Sebag. Um he was just opening his um his lab in at the University of Iowa. Uh it was in his first year, and he said, like, do you want to like get in contact with him and see if he would be interested in in, in having you for a PhD? I'm like, well, Yeah, why not? I mean. it doesn't hurt to ask so i I got in contact with julian he's like yeah uh, so you can come anytime and then we can get you on track and start for phd wow that was that easy (laughs) it's very it's funny you you think you're lucky but i think most of the the time people get to these points like phd in, in search uh like that randomly by just knowing someone that knows someone
0: yeah you never know um while you get a sip of your tea i you you were talking about the bacteria and the microbiology and everything. So it reminded, and it's something I don't think about that often, but it reminded me of the fact that, so, and I did my high school in Canada, actually just did two years and finished high school there. And in, in Quebec, before you go to university, there is what they call CEGEP. So it's two years of extra prep before you go to university. And during that CEGEP, Uh, I took a microbiology class and actually we did exactly what you just described where we had to collect samples across campus and then grow the bacteria on different plate types. And then we had to characterize the bacteria and it was so much fun. It was a lot of fun.
1: And Um, we were also, uh, uh, I remember because with this class, we were actually in charge of testing stuff sometimes throughout the school. It was a boarding school. I didn't mention that. Okay. Uh, it was a boarding school. It, was, it looks like uh, awkward. Awkward? Awkward?
0: Uh, hug, Hogwarts. You mean the Harvard. Harry Potter?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it was a castle, an old ministry, and they, they wow. converted in the, in the high school. It was very fun. I really had a great time over there. And we were in charge of testing in our microbiology class, you know, water, uh, the restroom. They asked us to swipe stuff. oh goodness
0: that's scary (laughs) whenever it grows
1: (laughs) yeah it was not great yeah just put it that way we had plenty of material to work with.
0: no no that's that's for sure and you know it reminds me of the fact that you know these places are not necessarily clean and there's a lot of stuff growing on there yet our immune system how beautiful is our immune system Hmm. because i I don't want to say well maybe not everybody washes their hands properly or most people don't wash their hands properly uh, which reminds me i was um volunteering at saint Jacin hospital uh this was during university and we were doing an exercise where you got this dye on your this uv dye on your hands and then uh you had to go wash your hands with soap and then they came with the uv light to show where where are the spots that you missed and we were 20 people in the class and none of us got it right none of us and then that you could tell where you actually didn't scrub the thing off so (laughs) it's a miracle the 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 immune system is is really phenomenal with everything growing everywhere
1: (laughs) we are lucky that's for sure
0: yeah yeah all right so you're 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 moving from france to iowa
1: So uh, we did that within the first, I mean, we we talked for like a, a week or two, and then within a the month or two, I was in the US. Uh, so I quit my master, uh, which was actually very stressful because we switched. It was during the period where the new uh, school year was starting, so I was really leaving at that point I was if I weren't leaving I would be in a deep trouble because I was not even registered for M2 so I was it was either I was going or I was taking a year off (laughs) so Wow. very happy to be able to ended up going and it was my first it, it was like my first big project in my life where I had to take a big decision like that yeah without my
0: parents you know of course. Ah, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more? I'm really just because we do, I don't know what well enough the French system. How does the you said master one and then master? Two. What is the difference between ah uh, you know the different master or uh, what's it called the different degrees? So you said that you were not registered. You yeah, would have so, had to take a, day, a, week, uh, a year off and then you quit your master. Does it mean that you didn't have didn't get to get your master's degree and you went for a PhD? Or how does, what does that look like?
1: So, no, yeah, I never got the final master. I just got my, pre, my pre-master, Master 1 year, basically. Okay. So, I was great for Master 1. Probably not anymore, not valid anymore since uh, it's been nine okay. years, eight years. <laughs> okay. Uh, Probably not valid anymore uh so i would have to start from the beginning but yes you do two mass two two years of master and then you graduate with a master
0: the okay course. so you only did you, one
1: yes i did one okay. year.
0: okay 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 i was confused there i thought it was like two degrees or something or what, this, what no, does that no. look like okay but then now you have a phd so who, can, who kind of cares exactly. at this exactly. point
1: exactly my master, i did i did i want to say the master i was into was excellent it was a translational physio- physiology translational I don't know if you translate well translational physiology
0: uh, yeah I think it's translational physiology yeah
1: it was awesome and the teacher worked great too I mean I didn't leave because I didn't like people I yeah, yeah, yeah. I the opportunity I couldn't <laughs> yeah
0: and then um what was your PhD about
1: so uh, I hmm. started so the first two year of my uh arriving to the US. So I arrived to the US and the first two years were me trying to get my uh, F1 student uh, visa. And because I, I came on a J1 uh, and I needed the F1 to start a, the PhD program. And I was going through direct entry. I was supposed to take this, uh, uh, I forgot the exam name, is it GRA? GRA. GRA. Uh,
0: yes, I think maybe GRA, I, again, did studied in Canada yeah. so i don't know
1: so there there is an exam that you have to take uh to get into a phd program i think it's the gre and okay it's a combination of language and math and stuff like that um i w- it would have been horrible if i had to take it because i don't test well uh, especially when language is involved
0: <laughs> yeah
1: so science is fine math is okay uh, language not at all that's why i went into science um But they canceled it uh, right when I applied for the program. So I didn't have to take a job. I was very happy about it. Uh, So the two years, I spent my two years first reading the law of literature to understand what I was doing there. Julian uh, trained me uh, on many, many techniques, molecular genetics, uh, some in vivo a little bit. And, uh, And then I joined the program. And the program was molecular physiology and biophysics and your bio. Um, And then so this, i i did my phd i completed my phd within four years and during that time i have studied uh not a gpcr per se but a accessory protein called the melanocortin receptor accessory protein or mrap 2. okay uh, there's an mrap 1 and there's an mrap 2. mrap 1 doesn't do much and mrap 2 does a lot so we focused on mrap 2. And it regulates many, many, many GPCR, uh, to the point where we were discussing with Julian about renaming it, keeping the uh, the word MRAP2, but renaming the, the letters and uh, naming it like master regulator of GPCR or something mm-hmm. like that. Because every time we were testing something, it seems to have an action or an effect on, mm-hmm. on the GPCR testing. And it ended up not being the case. But <laughs> uh, the one we tested were um so, of course, MC4, it was discovered by uh, uh, by uh, Roger when he cloned M- MC4 and we, they found it along with MC4MRAP2. And, RAP2. and uh, it's an accessory protein that it's actually very funny because it's one of the only protein that is known. I don't know if it's true still now, but back when I was studying it in like two or three years ago, it was known to be the only mammalian protein that is able to form an entire parallel homodimer. So it means like you have the one C on the outside and one C on the in, uh, on the inside, okay. and they bind together like this. Wow. In unit and they and they bind to a a receptor that they regulate. And the one I studied the most, I started with uh, the orexin receptor, and then I moved on to the ghrelin receptor. Did you a Mm-hmm. Um, which ghs one instantly might be my favorite uh, GPCR.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. we close second MC four, but we're still you know getting <laughs> to know each other. Um, yeah. but yeah, so MRAP two, as we shown that MRAP two has massive effect on those on those receptor. one uh, A is known to be very unstable when it's not bound to anything. It's always on off on off, and it has a very high constitutive activity. So when you look on graph, you see that it looks like it has an IP3 effect that is very high yeah. uh, all the time. And when MRAP2 bounce to it, it shuts down this constitutive activity so that you can see that when you stimulate the receptor, the maximum response is the same, but the amplitude of the response is much different. Mm-hmm. So it looks like a potentiation of the receptor signaling. Um, Interesting. And uh, it also helps trafficking some some of you help them traffic the membrane. MC4 is a good example. Uh, it also and it doesn't only potentiates uh, receptors, it also inhibits the activity of other receptor. Uh, so it's kind of a uh, a modulatory protein that is expressed. I, so we don't know if the it's dynamically expressed in the cells. I don't know if it's a constant expression or if it can change based on, I don't know, on food intake or energy status. Um, we don't know that, but it could be a way for the cell to regulate the uh, uh, the, the signaling of their its receptor. If it needs to be more ghsr one a it's gonna increase the amount of MRAP2. So it's gonna activate ghsr one a and EBD-orexin receptor. Uh, of course. I don't, I, but yeah, it's pretty cool. That's why it's my favorite so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, two things
0: before. Um, quick question. How so I'm just I just want to go back a little bit. So you're you're moving to Iowa. What does it look like for a French guy to move to Iowa? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the reason I'm asking is because it's first of all, you're changing countries for your for the first time. Right. What a big contrast between France, Europe, and the U.S., and then it's Iowa, which is again a very different environment. So you know, typically people when when they move to the U.S. they either stick to the East Coast or the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And I guess you followed the science, you followed the scientists where you wanted to do your PhD. But what was it like for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, overall, I'm a small town boy, uh, so I don't really enjoy big cities. Uh... At all, uh, so I, I'm more comfortable in those kind of city. I was, uh so the uh, in Iowa the city was Iowa City. It's a small progressive city. It's very, it's totally my my kind of city. Actually, I would love to go back there. Um, it was weird, especially that my English was not great. <laughs> it was okay. And English is my third language, so I I, I had to relearn. How to say. Had to learn how to think in English, uh, and it was uh, an abrupt uh, curve. It, it was not very like smooth. It was.
0: Yeah, you were a steep learning curve. You you were dropped yeah. in the middle of the pool and go swim basically.
1: Yeah. So the headaches. I don't know if if you experienced that. When did you did you uh, were you always uh, English speaker or did you learn? No. Speaking?
0: No, I I learned English, but for me, it was, I think it was more like a switch than anything else. So I, so I'm half Algerian, half Hungarian. So my mother tongue is Hungarian, uh, is Hungarian, but I learned Arabic at school. I went to school without knowing the language at all. It was a very scary day, but I used to speak French as well. And then we moved and lived in Canada where I studied in French. Mm-hmm. And then during my... Master's or PhD, beginning of PhD, Master's or PhD, I had the opportunity to go to a Gordon conference in Italy. And I think this was 2005, maybe. I'm um, just trying to rethink. And I shared the room with a PhD student who was at McGill University in Terry Ebert's lab, but she was from Italy, so she didn't speak French. And this was my first international conference and I was presenting a poster. And I think at that that week my English just turned on. But before mm. that, I barely used English other than to read papers because my classes, everything was in French. Um, my homework was in French, my master's degree was written in French, my PhD degree was also written in French. So yes, yes, it, it could it could have been this thick, but because it was in French, it was about this thick. <laughs> Because you need three, four times the number of words to express the same thing as you would in English.
1: Exactly. Um, I'm a terrible French writer. So.
0: <laughs> it's hard. It's very difficult. It yes. is extremely oh. difficult. It always reminds me, um, you know, there's La, la Grande Dictée. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: oh. That yeah, yeah.
0: one is like the next, next, next level. So for for the audience listening, I think it's a yearly contest where there is somebody who's reading a text in french and basically you have to write down what you're hearing and then they check for spelling and those are the most complicated words in french that end up in that text um just yeah, listening I... to it is just mind-blowing
1: <laughs> just the thought of it is
0: yeah
1: <laughs> hard to... yeah
0: yeah <laughs> no, yeah are... but I, I it was a long-winded answer but it just turned on for me and okay
1: so you didn't get the because me i know that when i transition i at first i was translating everything in my head and it was mm-hmm. first it was time consuming but also it was exhausting uh, i remember like first month in the u.s i was in bed at 9 p.m it, it was it was insane how much energy it took me to and then it, it gradually changed and I started to just think in English rather than translate my yeah. thought and then from there on it was much easier but the yeah it was it was a, a rough adaptation and i see that uh, i have a friend that came to do his postdoc uh, while i was in my phd he came to do his postdoc at the university of iowa as well uh, paul buscaglia he uh, he had a, a lesser I would say that. His curve was smoother, but not in a good way, I think. Because because we were talking in French, I think I was slowing his progress ah. uh, in English. And as soon as I left, he blew, he blew up. Yeah. Like he had like, great yeah. English and he started to speak yeah. much better. Uh, so yeah. I think I, I slowed him down and I'm sorry about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's also on record. Now it's interesting because people often ask me this question, in what language do you think? And I, I can't answer. I don't know. It depends. It depends. I have a hard time. Well, I have an easy time to switch from long, one language to another. If it's a language that I use regularly, I don't know what language I think. And I think I'm, I don't even, I can't figure it out. It's like there is some some thoughts that happen in my head and then my brain picks which language it activates when that mm-hmm. happens.
1: Yeah, I I do that too. Based on emotions, I'm usually scientifically. I always think in in English, uh, yeah. but it's more like a, a social uh, yeah. setting. And I I often catch myself thinking in French. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Interesting.
1: Yeah, it was a rough transition. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned also, I, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about this because the reason why I brought this up is to ask about how you, your transition was from, you know, one country to another and also a different language is because our most of our audience or a lot of, a lot of people listening to the podcast are between the ages of 25 and, and 35. And I always want to hear how the transition went for our guests in order to encourage them because... Although it was difficult and your learning curve was steep to, to get to the English that you want level that you wanted to and push back your, um, you know going to bedtime because of the <laughs> energy expenditure, I think it was. It seems like it was absolutely worth doing that transition, going from oh, yeah. from Europe. No the...
1: regret really at all. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. No regret whatsoever. I as soon as I came to the US, uh, it was. I was very well supported with Julian, uh, Dr. Sebag. He actually, he's also an immigrant. Uh, he was, a, he came from France as well. Um, and he really like fought for me. He took care of all my J1, F1 transition. And when there was a problem, he was up in and on, ready to, to defend me every time. So I really n- never felt the immigration problem until I actually left his lab. <laughs> had to, uh, you know, sponsor myself, and this is where I realized it's like, oh my god, it's so much work, but yeah. you know, it's great. It really helped me a lot, uh, along with the University of Iowa, uh, in 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 transitioning and maintaining my visa. Yeah, yeah. So you just have to find the right people. Yeah.
0: Two two more questions before we move on to your current position and and the transition from Iowa to to Michigan. You mentioned that uh, you mentioned something about three languages, so we have French, English, and what else
1: and German that german. was my wow
0: thing. wow that's that's hard that's a hard one at least at least for me I had german classes in in school um before I moved to Canada, and that was just absolutely zero no no permeability at all so wow, kudos to you. Do you ever think in German no
1: Never. I don't. I never lived in Germany or I've been immersed in the culture. So I don't I don't think uh, my, my my German spoken would be even great uh, if I were to speak with someone. I don't think they would find it OK. <laughs> I, well, I would they?
0: Would it. you understand what they were saying? You couldn't be sold right, in German.
1: Yeah, no, probably not.
0: OK. All right. And then the, the other question I had is. um. You 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 seem you mentioned having great support from your PhD mentor from Julian and you really had a good time when you decided to move to Iowa to his lab. You mentioned you were in discussions for about a week or two before everything happened. What mm-hmm. gave you the confidence or what were the signs that you got from him that gave you the, the the motivation to say, okay, I think it's going to be okay and I really want to do this. This is important because you're one of the exceptions who didn't write to many or email many different people to figure out which lab they wanted to go to. It kind of happened through a conversation. But I want to know what were the criteria, even unwritten ones that pushed you to say, well, actually, this is going to be cool. I'm going to go there.
1: Yeah. I also, I would I should say that I I actually applied to a couple. Oh, uh, PIs, that's but right. So I didn't know how it worked. So I was just emailing PIs, and they were like, "Sorry, we're part of an umbrella. We can't take you." And I'm like, "What is an umbrella? What are you talking about?" <laughs> and they were not. Once they they rejected you, they they intended not to talk to you anymore. So. I didn't understand, but yeah. So Julian, Julian did. Julian is a very confident individual and is very well spoken and can sell you anything. Uh, and he sold his lab to me very quickly. He just basically described what he was doing, what I will achieve, uh, and he didn't lie. Uh, I did great in his lab. We uh, the first year I came around, we published uh, one review. And basically, it was a review just recapping what MRAP two is used in uh, MRAP one as well. Mm-hmm. What, what does it what does it do physiologically? Um, and then we I I was I was what was I doing? What did I do? I I was doing something with uh, neuronal. Uh, what was it? Oh yeah, I was trying to understand uh, whether MRAP two had an effect on neurons, and we had uh, the idea that we we weren't weren't sure, but we had. Uh, that suggested that MRAP two was also expressed in mitochondrial membranes, and we did see horse experiments on primary neurons, and apparently I, for some reason it was never done. So on arcuate nucleus, uh, well no, yeah, yeah, yeah they were arcuate, uh, HGRP uh, and PYY neurons. And apparently, it was never done. I was doing micro dissection, uh, dissociation of the neuron, and then put them in the seahorse. Uh, So, and then I was isolating, sorry, I was isolating mitochondria and then putting them in the seahorse. And in collaboration with another lab, we wrote a book chapter on uh, on the method that we developed to uh, check the uh, oxygen, the the activity of those mitochondria. And then uh, uh, the third year, I published my first. Uh, first author paper where I described uh, the effect of mrap two on P- on orexin receptor and pkr one, and then uh, we then moved on to ghsa one a and I published uh, again as first author uh, a paper on, on the effect of mrap two on the gpc on the ghsa one a, and then another paper when I was writing my thesis uh, on uh, the effect on how MRAP2 regulates geogosome on it. We already knew the effect, and I did some experiment, a molecular experiment, to determine how MRAP2 prevents uh, the constitutive activity of the receptor and how it uh, helped in uh, recruiting beta arresting. And and then what was your question again? Sorry. No.
0: So the question was uh, actually I forgot that question. <laughs> I you you I got to thinking about mRap 2 because I honestly don't know enough about it. So and the other question, the other thing, one of the questions that I have listed is how did you get into studying GPCRs? But I guess working on mRap two got you into hearing and working on GPCRs. Although your focus one was on mRap two, so I'm very interested in. Uh, a high-level description as to you mentioned it a little bit, but a little bit more details about what this mrap two do. Any historical facts? I don't want to put you on the spot if you say, "I mean, here is my review. Read it. That's fine too."
1: No, so uh, mrap two. The, the problem with mrap two is that physiologically, mrap two knockouts become and they have a late onset obesity. So. It's an accessory protein of MC4, and MC4 is well known to regulate food intake and homeostasis. If you do an MRAP2 knockout animal, they have an early onset obesity, and they have a decrease, uh decreased activity. MRAP2 is kind of more tricky because it doesn't look like there is any phenotype, phenotypical response that would suggest obesity, but yet there is an obesity phenotype. So they have, they have normal food intake, they don't have decreased activity, we don't really know how it works apparently it's how mram to distribute the fat is altered in some way uh and i don't think we have the response yet the answer to that yet interesting uh, like
0: um, a... oh, now uh, no, i was just oh, gonna say it sounds like a very interesting protein there's a little delay so it looks like we're interrupting each other
1: no, it it is, it is an awesome protein, and honestly, this is my, I, I hope, uh, I still, like, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but, uh, so, basically, every time I do an experiment, I always try to include, because <laughs> MC4 is regulated with MRAP2, and I study a lot of MC4 right now, yeah. I always try to have a little condition with MRAP2, with <laughs> MRAP2, to just continue a little bit, Keep the legend alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never know. I mean, there's so much that we don't know. And you don't know what you don't know. So if you have yeah. space on your plate or space in the experiment where you can add in an extra condition.
1: Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody. And yeah. uh, and my, my favorite actually, my favorite discovery with mRap2 was right before I left. And uh I showed that mRAP2 uh I it's, it's not, it's not, oh, sorry. I'm going to reformulate it that. It's not my favorite discovery about MRAP2. My favorite discovery uh, in the context of studying MRAP2 in GGSA1A was that uh, GGSA1A appears to have a lack of phosphorylation when MRAP2 is bound to it. So it prevents the better uh, recruitment of beta arresting. And the interesting thing is that when you so 2 since MRAP2 inhibits the beta recruitment of gj one a we wonder why and how. And I showed that uh, when MJGS1A C-terminal tail is phospholated, it actually doesn't serve as an anchoring point of beta which is the current, not the current model. There is multiple models, but the most accepted model is that uh, beta-iristin use the anchoring uh Aspect of the C terminal tail to get into the core of the protein. And I showed that by doing just a simple deletion of the entire C terminal tail of the receptor, I showed that it actually increases the recruitment of beta (laughs) arrestin. And it actually, and I developed what what I call the gate model. Uh, So the C terminal tail is actually a gate model. So it just sits on the core of the the receptor and prevents any recruitment from beta arrestin. And I, I was never uh, able to prove it, but uh, my hypothesis is that when it's phospholated, this heteronormous tells moves away, and then uh, yes. there is access to the core. And the same uh, the same um, theory was developed by another lab. I forgot the name of the, the person. I'm terrible with his name. Uh, he works at the Mayo Clinic, and he showed the exact same thing with a different receptor. Interesting. Like uh, the of military was used as a gate model, a gate rather than an anchoring point to be the seen. And it I was actually it. uh it was during the GPC the GPCR retreat in Nigarfo
0: mm-hmm.
1: he presented these results.
0: Oh interesting. Now I'm I I feel like I wanna go back and see the program and see who this is. And, oh, okay. and...
1: we email back and forth after I, I could okay. give you.
0: Okay, uh, I'm but it was
1: very validating that someone else find the same thing that I did. Uh,
0: nice, that paper. is really nice. It's very interesting, and and it's funny because whenever you think, well, when I want to, in general, we think about GPCRs and activation. We do, you know, the classical assay, G protein, beta restin But then there's so much more that we don't know yeah. that happens in the cell, and there's so much that controls receptor activity mm-hmm. that we either don't know about or don't yet have the tools to to study or to measure
1: right and this is basically from there from there on i actually develop a massive interest for bias signaling and this is basically this is if i continue in academia it's probably what i want to study stay on to be able to uh, it blows my mind that we we screen entire library of compounds for just GQG protein G activity and we just bypass BRST. When when if you find a a low or no GS res- or G, uh, G protein response but a high in response, it could be invaluable yeah. because they also have their own signaling.
0: I agree. I Agree and. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I uh, we invited to the Dr. G P C R symposia symposium, not the one in November, but the one in in uh, in September. Terry Kenakin and I love how he thinks about receptors in general, as these allosteric machines, mm-hmm. where. Anything can be an allosteric modulator, whether whether it's a G protein, whether it's the ligand or, you know, it, everything is in motion. And so you, everything, any interaction causes an effect. So right. kind of removing the labels of G protein, beta restin, you know, anything else. If you look at the system and say, well, this is my protein of interest, which is the receptor. And I want to look at what does modulate its function and where does that come from? And then it's hard to integrate, but it's still fascinating to think that the cells, different cells have different proteins and they're still able to integrate the signaling and do the right thing at the right time, knowing that there's not just one GPCR per cell, there's many more. Mm-hmm. And, and there's- It's just...
1: You, you, you know, you also have those GPCR that can do heterodimerization with other GPCRs. So yeah. all, all, all of it is dynamic. And based yeah. on the, the interactome of the, the cell, you're yeah. going to have different response for the same agonist and the same receptor.
0: Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I think it's really, really cool. Agreed. <laughs> all right. So how did you end up in, in the lab that you're in today?
1: Uh, so Roger Cohn was the PI, uh, Julian did his postdoc in Roger Cohn's lab, mm-hmm. so he collaborated a lot on different uh, different projects. We I, I published with, with uh, my second paper, I published with two of his lab members, okay. and we had multiple visits over there uh, at the Life Science Institute where I'm at now, uh, and at the end of, and, and at the end, I didn't know a lot Uh, that's one of the things that i lacked during my phd and i would recommend for the phd student now to actually invest a lot of time in networking and meeting people because i didn't know much uh, anybody else than uh you know roger my my committee meeting at the university of iowa and and julian basically so i went for and roger is an excellent researcher i not. I didn't settle down. I settled up. I was very lucky that he accepted me to be in this lab. Honestly, and I also wanted to stay in the same uh, area of uh, back in the day. I really wanted to stay in uh, mRap two uh, environment. Yeah. Even though we don't do a lot of mRap two study uh, in Roger Kuntz lab, but I still he's still interested in mRap two, but it's not his main focus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is how I got there. I basically asked. Uh, roger if i could join his lab and since he knew me and i knew him it was very easy
0: yeah which is again it goes back to to what you were mentioning in the beginning is you never know where you're going to end up so keeping an open mind talking to people and then especially if you if you're open to collaborations you go to meetings you get to meet people then it's so much easier to prepare for your next step
1: that is very true and during the meet that's the thing When you go to a meeting, I used to just, you know, go to the talk and then move on, uh, go do something. Or because we were with friends, we didn't talk to anybody else. This is really the wrong thing to do. You have to engage with people. I know it's uncomfortable at first, but you you get used to it very quickly because it's very rewarding at the end of the day. It's scary at first, but then when you do the first move and you actually talk to the person you, you realize you're not dying and then you actually <laughs> enjoy out of it and you can you it's gonna just get easier to do it but starting that early on is a very good idea
0: I love how you, you described like you're not dying and it is true but it can be as daunting as you're like oh my god I'm gonna die I have to talk to that person or to to one person and um which it's so interesting it's no, it's like confidence You are not born networker, you are not born confident. You build, you gain it over time. So um, for those listening who have never networked or never gone out of their comfort zone, you can start step by step, small little steps. And then that at some point, you know, within six months to a year, you're gonna be a different person because you're you're grow, growing your ability to network
1: yeah start by talking to a phd that you another phd we all like that anyway so find a phd that is just like you not talking to anybody and just go yeah. talk to them and they're gonna yeah. introduce you to their pi and stuff like that and just
0: exactly exactly and, no i think oh, please go ahead again and <laughs> the,
1: more, the more the more people you know the better true cho- the better choice you have at the end of the day uh yeah. the more people you can choose from I don't know how to say that correctly but yeah and yeah, no, I love choice.
0: Yeah 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 you have you have more opportunity and I think I think it's important to know what others are working on what others are doing and it's so easy you can kind of even build yourself a protocol on how to approach someone and what are the questions that you could be asking that person the more yeah. you ask that person about them what do they do where are they from what do they work on and the more you make them talk about themselves it's it sounds it sounds silly but the more they're gonna like you because you gave them the opportunity to talk about themselves and then you're building that bond
1: I remember having those very awkward moments when at first when I was trying to uh, interact with people oh my god that was horrible they were blank and nobody tried so always have you know and uh, a fill the blank uh remark or question that you can question ask yeah,
0: yeah yeah
1: have 10 of them and then you're gonna fill all the blanks and nobody's gonna yeah. be
0: uncomfortable <laughs> exactly and you know it depends on on people sometimes you know silence is not a bad thing you have it's very uncomfortable <clears throat> but once you've chatted with someone a little bit and then there's some quiet moments. Obviously, you're not standing in front of each other, but maybe you're at a conference and then you just chatted a little bit and then there is a moment of silence. It's not a bad thing. I think it shows that you can you're comfortable enough with that person to stay quiet for a few a few moments. But yeah, the weather is a good especially if you're in Canada (laughs) or in Michigan. Exactly. Talking about the weather, um there's a small little topics that people might be interested in. The other thing is that getting prepared. You know you're going to a conference, yes, typically, as a student or a postdoc, you have a poster or a talk to give, right? So you're preparing scientifically. But there is an additional set of preparations that you can do. You can look at the list of speakers. If you have access to the list of attendees or you know people who are going there, then you can have, look up those people and see what they're interested in read a paper or an abstract from from those from those who are presenting or poster presenters and this way you can go and have a productive conversation and you can say something nice or you can ask a question about previous work that they've done and again going back to you asking them questions about what they're doing and who they are and what their work is on and it's that simple
1: yeah the first step but,
0: yeah yeah that's that, that's a long game that's a long yeah. game you never know and you, you know who who you will uh, end up working with uh who you can help who can help you but it's all about forming those connections
1: yeah no for sure i mean I would, i've never gone to my phd if i hadn't talked to that person that i didn't know back in the day but
0: yeah yeah Social- at the end of the stairs
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> A cloud of cancer
0: <laughs> yes yes it reminds me of this episode of friends i don't know if you've ever watched friends where yeah. when rachel uh got this job um, i think at bloomingdale's or something and then yeah. the boss and the colleagues are our smokers and they make all the decisions without her while smo- in the smoking area and then she tries to act like she's smoking just because she wants she wants to be in the conversation <laughs>
1: It is so true, though. My <laughs> best, my best interaction with the PI was doing my internship. With was when we were smoking downstairs.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you're in a, in a different setting, and it was a different yeah. time as well.
1: It was a different time.
0: All right. So yeah, now um, you moved to Michigan. You're in Roger Cohen's lab you have this interest in the melanocortin receptors because of your PhD work. What are you working on currently, if you can tell us?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm working on a lot of things. Uh, (laughs) Well,
0: and then then once you tell us how many things you're working on, I'd like to know how do you manage all those things? Uh, Do I? (laughs) I don't know, maybe.
1: I mean, I definitely do, but I would recommend not to have too many things cut back. So today I actually had a meeting with my PI Roger and because we talk about doing something new, and I'm like, OK, we do something new, but now we have to cut somewhere else, because I can. Um, so I do a lot of things. I do, so my main focus is on the melatonin 4 receptor. Uh, so Roger likes to assign specific projects to uh, to his postdocs. And then you can also have uh, additional project on the side that it doesn't, you know, uh, he lets you do whatever you want. Be creative, mm-hmm. um, which is awesome. Uh, so my, I since I love bio-signaling, uh, I have been working with uh, a library, a compound library that he has developed with uh, in collaboration with Courage Therapeutics, uh, and it, it's a full, ca- it's a full library of agonists, MC4 agonists, and some mm-hmm. of them are extremely specific for the first time and to the MC4. Oh yeah, there is multiple MC4. There is MC one, two, three, four. Uh, advice and they they lack a lot of specific i don't know if you heard of set C- C- well
0: it's in the, all of these things are always in the news lately yeah. so
1: so C- is a mc4 agonist mm-hmm. uh it's not specific at all that's the problem so uh if you were going to inject uh you know it's an injectable drug so if you inject it in your skin your skin is going to darken because uh is going, to, is going to activate uh, something else. Uh, it's going to activate another ml rather than the MC4 mm-hmm. that is expressed in the brain. And uh, when you activate MC4 in the brain, you are shutting down uh, appetite. So basically, yeah. you are uh, increasing society. Um, so the idea, it works, but it's not specific at all. So what we are trying to do is develop specific uh, MC4 agonists. Okay. Uh, and from this library, so they, they developed a ton of compounds uh, through doing through this effort. And through this library, I actually tried to uh, screen it for also beta resting. Uh So I had to adapt uh, an assay that we developed uh, when I was at, in June Sebag's lab. Uh, it's a nanobit based assay. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with nanobit? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad. Maybe all the people are not. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot. We're not but
0: may- yeah.
1: Uh, so, uh, nanobit is a split luciferase. There is a large bit portion and a small bit portion. And when they come together, they reform an enzyme, a luciferase that is able to hydrolyze the substrate that you give it. Uh, the substrate is used, I think, is called furimazine. Uh, so through that, you can have uh, MC4R linked to a fuse the of MC4R fused to large bit, and you fuse the uh, small bit on the N-terminal of beta arrestin. Uh, one and two, and then when you uh, when you uh, activate the receptor, it's going to be phosphorylated and recruit beta arrestin. And when they are approximately close to each other, they are able to reconstitute the enzyme. The enzyme is not the affinity of large bit and small bit is extremely poor, so there is no drive. They don't drive the interaction between the receptor and beta arrestin. So only special, special, uh, the the special parameters is the only one that matters. So when they're together, uh, you have reconstitution of the enzyme, and you have uh, the luminescence when you hydrolyze the substrate. Uh, so we developed this assay. I had to just adapt it for uh, high throughput screening, mm-hmm. uh, which was very easy since the assay is excellent. Um, and then uh, I screened the entire. I started to screen the entire library. And I found a couple nuggets that indicate that there may be some beta arresting uh, uh, agonists that are biased towards beta arresting. Sorry. I'm okay. trying to point that phrase beta biased. Uh it's not mm. working so far. I didn't it <laughs> this, but I will if I can. I'm trying to call beta biased agonist. So an alpha biased agonist, so beta arresting biased. Yeah.
0: Agonists, I, I so. think I think Lauren Slowski has this um. Uh, it's uh, well actually it was a modulator but it's it's beta restin the, the BAM the beta be, beta restin allosteric modulator i think that's that's um that's the compound she's working on so maybe maybe a cool acronym uh <laughs> out of there yeah i mean i'm i'm just trying
1: to because every time I have to explain that, oh, yeah, this is a biased agonist, it's biased towards yeah. beta arrest, and whether I can just say it's a beta biased agonist.
0: Yeah. And in this case, uh, you mentioned uh, ha- what are you looking for exactly?
1: So I'm trying to look for it. Uh, so beta arrest in signaling is very poorly uh, studied. Uh, mm-hmm. there, is, there is very little data on the Bias signaling of a sorry beta-arrestin signaling, and the in vivo effect of beta-arrestin activation is very, very, very poorly studied. So what I'm trying to do is to find a beta-arrestin uh, biased uh, sorry an agonist biased towards beta-arrestin, so a beta biased agonist that I can inject mm-hmm. in animals to see what the activation of uh, only beta-arrestin through the mc 4 receptor what would okay. be the effect. Do we get uh, satiety or do we get cardiovascular events? But uh, MC4-R is known also to have, when overactivated, to create uh, severe depression. And you will have a lot of, uh, there is two examples, there is a hypo and hypertension I- events that happens. Okay. And that, as you may know, in drug discovery, it's a big no-no. So as soon as you get an effect on the, the heart, they shut it down. So yeah. by, it, you know, the idea of being able to decouple the signaling, of the receptor and isolate those effects. So let's mm-hmm. say uh, the signaling is mainly uh, mainly giving a cardiovascular effect and gs is mainly giving a satiety effect so we can develop you know better drugs so create an alpha biased agonist to make sure that this guy is only going to trigger the satiety effect and not the cardiovascular effect so that's yeah. what I'm trying to do but mm-hmm. it takes time.
0: And is it beta arrestin one or beta arrestin two? The reason I'm asking this is because for every GPCR I worked on, <clears throat> I always tested beta arrestin one versus beta arrestin two, and very rarely I saw any difference between these two. Although we know that beta arrestin one is also involved in the beta catenin uh, path signaling pathway, yeah.
1: but
0: any they, thoughts so, on?
1: They do both. Uh, so MC4R recruit both. Uh, A, preferentially recruits beta arrestin two, but again, this is this is an overexpression system. I have been studying it mm-hmm. with, so I I couldn't tell you if it's true or not. But mm-hmm. from, from the in, in vitro st- the study I did, it looks like it it's preferentially recruiting beta arrestin two.
0: Interesting, interesting. That's why I, that's why I keep wondering why I always tested. So I used to use Brett uh, to measure beta arrestin recruitment. And no matter which beta and I looked at any receptor, mostly class A, mostly chemokine receptors, no difference between beta restin one or two. We always stuck to two if we had to make a choice and you know decrease the number of plates we had to run. But <clears throat> I in in these in vitro assays, I never could find a receptor that had a preference for one versus the second the other one.
1: Oh yeah, it's I don't know if it's the like I said, I can't tell you if it's just an expression problem. I didn't check yet. Yeah, it could very well be just that. And I've yeah. never encountered a, I never encountered a GPCR that doesn't recruit either. Uh, both basically. They, yeah. If you shut down beta in two, it's just going to recruit more beta arrestin.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this. Maybe that's the whole point of having two beta. Yeah,
1: they each other. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah. I don't know if you saw this assay is. It's it's superior to the bread because you can see kinetically the effect the, the recruitment of beta arrestin. Uh, so uh, let me actually to.
0: now well, you can yeah but I was gonna ask how well with bread as well you can very nicely see the kinetics of beta arrestin recruitment. Uh depending on which generation of bread biosensors you have, you can measure at room temperature up to forty five minutes easily. I don't know, mm-hmm. about the the nanobit. But it's, it's very nice. And then I, you can actually, at least what I've done in the past with chemokine receptors is either you have the cells plated, you add your substrate and then you add your, your ligand and then you put in the plate reader and then you measure over 30, 30 to 45 minutes and you can very nicely see the recruitment or the opposite where I was looking at a decrease. So I stimulated the cells for five minutes at 37 with the compounds, then get the compound the plate out, added the substrate, and then I was looking at the, at any decrease.
1: Right. Um. Yeah. It's it's relatively similar. Uh, you get like very the, the definition of the signal is, um, superior because you can use PMTs with uh, luminescence, right? So yeah, you you have a better definition of the the kinetic. So you're gonna see yeah. the recruitment of the the the, the, the into the GPCR, and then you're gonna see the decrease and you're going to see dissociation between yeah. HPE and beta resting. And some of them have, you know, recruit and steady. So you can I, tell yes. they're heavily bound together and they're very high affinity with each other.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't think I ever saw dissociate, like really quick dissociation. Oh,
1: GSS1, that does not like beta arrestin too. As soon as you can <laughs> get rid of it, it does. It takes <laughs> Interesting. Roughly, within two minutes, it just kicks it off.
0: Wow. And but it, tell,
1: saying, it tells you whether or not the receptor is either internalized or recycled, or it gives you clues like that that you can exploit.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then um then you have the bystander breath tools as well that allow you to track your receptor and see where it goes after mm-hmm. after stimulation. So it's really cool. So that's one project you're working on. You were mentioning working on multiple projects. Yes. Um
1: so I'm also trying to uh, I always wanted to do that, never was able to do it. And since Roger Cohn has a little bit more money than Julian, I wanted to test uh, and determine and finally assess a mosaic, a phosphor mosaic of okay. HBCR. So I want to stimulate it. I'm working on stimulating MC4R and uh, trying to catch that frame and send it to spec and have uh, to identify the phosphomosaic of MC4R mm-hmm. based on the agonist I used, so the idea is that if you have a beta, if you have a balanced agonist, you're gonna have I don't know like six different phosphorylation sites that are going to be phosphorylated, and if you use a beta-arrestin agonist, you're gonna I don't know maybe four of them are going to be uh, phosphorylated. So you can identify important phosphocytes that are used for this and that. So mm-hmm. this is one of the thing I'm trying to do right now. Uh, it's just super hard to get. Uh, uh, enough material uh, I'm trying to do that in plates it didn't work because the maximum plate we have is a 15 centimeter mm-hmm. and I needed I, I tried with 10 and I didn't get enough protein to be able to see it on the Kumasi because if wow. you don't see it in Kumasi don't go to mass spec it's useless yeah. and especially the I mean we tried with a silver stain we can see it with a silver stain but the thing is it, it impacts then the um the the cutting of the protein later on when they have to uh, before they run into mass spec okay. so uh so we went so we have a great um structural biologist in our lab called uh, alice Alice Bursley and she is used to do it, product producing a lot of protein to be able to see them through cryo em oh yeah we have a cryo em at the life science institute Nice. So it is uh, is comfortable there. She can do cryoEM all the time and do pr- crystal structure and stuff. She is very lucky for that. So she knows how to do these kind of things. So she helps me and she helped me in uh, finding a way to produce enough receptor that I will be able to stimulate and uh, you know and shut down stimulation uh, in in the frame I want. The the hard part is to find the right time to stop the reaction to keep the phosphorylation. Uh, because they can be quickly dephosphorylated right after. Um, this and is it has
0: interesting. To,
1: yeah, and it has to be done in mammalian cells. This is a problem. It could be very easily done in yeast or insect cells, but in insect cells, you you're gonna have maybe uh, you're not gonna have the right GRKs. You're not gonna have the the right PKAs, okay. and MC4 apparently use all of them. So. Uh, I have to uh, find a cell line that have all the, the the good kindness that can <laughs> postulate my 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 receptor correctly. So yeah, we are going to use that.
0: Any chance to do this in a cell free um, assay? I don't know.
1: That you need to supplement it, right? So yeah, it's I more try...
0: work, but it might be cleaner.
1: The the thing is, I don't know what. <sighs> what kinases I need to add. It looks like you use most of them. I, used, I did the uh, you know, inhibitory assays where I use Campan 101 or UO1693 uh, yes. that blocks GRKs, 2, 3, and some mm-hmm. of the PKs. And every time I block, there, there is still phosphorylation or still beta recruitment suggesting yeah. phosphorylation. Yeah. So I don't, I haven't been able to identify a specific kinase that I would have to supplement in a cell-free assay.
0: Yeah. Have you thought about uh, looking at like um jerky knockout cells or even beta-rested knockout cells where you would supplement, you know, a kind of a cleaner background where you, you can add in the proteins that you want and see the different effects and then. From there, because for example, I worked with compound one hundred one. I mean, it's such a messy thing, and you need to use a lot of it, and it's not that specific. So yeah. it gives you some idea, but it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, instead of let maybe instead of using a salt free environment and trying to you know because you need to purify all of these proteins, it's a whole other field right. there. Um, maybe thinking about using a a a cellular the cell line with a background where you have or multiple cell lines that have specifically deleted some components mm-hmm. and then it's kind of it's kind of like a puzzle it's a lot of work i'm not saying it's an easy fix but, but I, I do
1: love doing increase personally
0: <laughs> there you go there uh, you go and, and...
1: It, it could be done yeah, for sure but i think we're gonna go with the easy way <laughs> And also, you have to remember that we also have to have a cell line that has an endogenous expression of MRAP2. Because without MRAP2, MCT4 doesn't even get to the membrane. So one Chok some CHOK1 cell line don't even express MRAP2 correctly. And some of them express it too much. Uh, so we decide to still on the hex cells. Uh, there is a great heck that you can uh, culture in, uh, in, um, in reactors. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I think we're going go to go towards <laughs> that. If I do it based on our meeting, is going to be benched for a while, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: but we will eventually. Um, I will eventually do it at some point when I have a minute. Uh, okay. Another project I'm working on is uh, understanding the apple insufficiency effect of MC4R. So MC4R, if you have one copy, uh, you're gonna have the, half the phenotype. Uh, so a head animal will be uh, not as obese, but obese. Nonetheless, okay. uh, have, basically every half. You're going to have the activity, have the obesity, and okay. have the hypervision So we need to understand how this sufficiency uh, insufficiency works. Uh, so I'm working on that. Uh, I'm also trying to understand um, compound brain penetration. So we have, like I said, there is some compounds like setmenalitide that are, if you inject a... a a ball is uh, big enough, you're going to have a cardiovascular event. And what I observed was a massive hypotension. So the animal just stopped moving basically uh, because it has no, almost no pressure. <laughs> wow. uh, so, so, but we don't understand why. And the idea is that maybe it's just a brain access problem. Mm-hmm. So maybe your, uh, your campon is not. It's just not getting into the right nuclei, or is getting into the wrong one, and that uh, can be assessed. So we also work on that. Uh, and now I am trying to uh, make a sensor that would be uh, that would allow me to measure the agonist recruitment, the agonist, the agonist stimulation of a receptor. So basically, when uh, the GPCR would be an on confirmation. It would uh, give me a signal and I can assess. That would actually help me do the, the brain penetration project and see if, uh, when I inject a on does, does this uh, part mm-hmm. of the brain lights up? It means the access, the campon has access to it. Um, and uh, I forgot oh. where I'm at. There is a couple <laughs> more.
0: And how do you, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about how do you manage all of these?
1: uh i have a I, I don't have it with me but i have a, a, an organizer
0: i think yeah, yeah. Right. like yeah um, yeah
1: i try to use google calendar but for some reason i, I at some point i just stopped using it uh, i i forget to put stuff in it so when i have to write stuff in my in my yeah. organizer i always have a, like a, a physical one
0: okay and,
1: and I, whatever I, works detail, detail the organizer Timeline.
0: Okay. I love it. Yeah, I'm I'm a Trello person. Uh and a Google. If it's not in the calendar, it's not happening. And uh every everything I can think of, every little task that I have to do is typically in Trello. Um mainly because I need to unload my brain. It helps me put it down somewhere where I know that I can. Set so deadlines, I can look at it, I can come back to it, I can backtrack it. And it's hard because for a long time I kept things in my head.
1: But that that runs in the background, and that, that is a little distracting. Yeah. So as soon as you put it on paper or in a computer, you you don't have to think it's out.
0: It. Exactly. Yeah. And and it happened many times during my postdoc or PhD where I woke up in the middle of the night to, oh, I forgot this. You know, so now it's in Trello or it's in my calendar or somewhere where I can track it and it has a deadline. And if I don't do it, by, the, if I forget about it and I don't do it, I get a reminder a day before, which you can set up reminders to any time, like any number of days before. Right. And then you can, uh, you don't have to think about it. It's kind of a really nice unloading of the brain.
1: Right. For sure. I do the, uh, every morning I just go through the the program of the day and go for it.
0: Wow, yeah, I, it's it's funny because my calendar is very, very packed. And every time I open my calendar recently, I feel my stress level going up because things are moving so much. um uh, but i'm 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 getting a handle on that. And I realized not too long ago that I'm more efficient if I have my mornings without meetings, which mm-hmm. gives me enough time to you know dig into my emails, make sure the tax tasks are done and then in the afternoon i'm ready for my meetings so um that's, again that's, i think
1: that's exactly i do the opposite i do all my meetings in the morning and i have no meetings or emails in the afternoon try not to okay
0: yeah 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 i don't know i it depends on on if if you can work later and the time at which you end your day doesn't isn't you know, doesn't have to stop at a specific time, which was exactly the case for me during my postdoc and my PhD, where it actually didn't matter because I just needed to finish my things. And I could sometimes finish at four, sometimes at six, sometimes at eight, depending on the type of experiments. But uh, with the family, it's a whole other ball game here.
1: Also, um, you know, so maybe it's TMI, but after my PhD, I had a massive, I was very depressive. Because I just burned out, basically. Uh, So from now on, I do not work after 5. Or I do not extend my time in the lab after 5. I can work at home. But uh, it's healthy to put some breaks. Because otherwise, I mean, science is so easy to just stay in the lab until 10. Yes. You can find a way. You can find any. You can find an easy way to. It's easy to find something to do until 10.
0: Oh, I agree. Uh, I agree.
1: So, putting boundaries is healthy, uh, especially if you. Do. It's fine when you don't live with somebody, but as soon as you're gonna enter into like a yeah. more personal life, that's not gonna work great. Right. Uh, Absolutely. No, experience. I agree.
0: No, no, I agree with you. And the the times I stayed longer in the lab is because I had nothing else to do, and it was just fun to, to work and with my colleagues things, and them.
1: Occasionally, it's yeah. actually I do it too. Wednesday, usually uh, I go to uh, I go to a bar with the colleagues. We have a beer, and usually we go back to work and have we uh, can we continue to do some stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's fine to do it occasionally, but uh, yeah, I agree. Not making an habit is better.
0: No, I agree. I agree. I actually never worked on weekends ever during my postdocs or even my PhD. I not because. One, I didn't want to. Two, I didn't want my boss to know because then it becomes something routine. Mm-hmm. And then three is because every time I started to, to plan something for the weekend, it failed. <laughs> so that was a good incentive to say no. I The one thing I used to do during my postdoc because I used to live five minutes door to door from the lab is start a culture, split cells, on Friday for example I used to do uh, a lot of in plate transfections so I if I were if I had prepared my DNA and my protocol was ready I could go in on Sunday to transfect so that I could yeah. start my week sooner but that was it spending the whole weekend no spending too much time in the lab no either I think it's not beneficial long term I did, however, come into the lab at six morning at six in the morning from time to time where I had to generate data very quickly um, to, to respond to reviewers. And that was a unique situation. But I do agree with you to have those boundaries.
1: Yeah. Just not making it the norm is the health, the healthy yeah. way for me at least. I mean, yeah. other people are they prefer. It's all
0: them. different, yeah. Yeah. All right. So what next after your postdoc?
1: well so i don't know yet uh i've been diving into industry right now so uh i i went to the conference the american physiology society conference uh in 2023 where i met uh uh, patricia silvera like i said in the newsletter i don't think she knows half of the influence she had on me uh but she basically Showed us how she explained to us how to get to a position where you have some not power but you are how to progress fast into your up, up to where she was, which is the head of a department,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the right thing to do, the thing that you shouldn't do, and one of the main points she she says like to involve yourself in a, a position of leadership at the university, yeah, and and network lot so yeah. at my university there was uh, at the university of michigan there was a uh, we have the postdoctoral association uh, and they have election every year when they, you can apply to become whatever uh, chair is open and i yeah. became the chair of international affairs at the university of michigan postdoctoral association okay, uh, and so i decided by just helping uh, international people uh, students uh, postdocs that you know come to the US for the first time and have no idea how to do whatever we have to do in the US, including you know uh, health insurance. Like nobody knew that nobody yeah. knew that you have your health insurance at, at work uh, or how it works. You also have because you know we use. I mean, I know that in France I was used to have the health, dental, etc. Everything together. Yeah. You have your vital card and you just pay with it, and, and you never like spend the money. Yeah. But here is different you have to find your dental plan you have to find your vision plan you have to find your etc so i help those people to uh, get where they have to be and uh, not you know get in trouble when they have an emergency and they have to exactly a amount of money um and at the same time i met with uh, a, a rep uh at laika uh-huh. uh, and we were talking she was demonstrating her new microscope the mica and we were talking and I realized that we don't have any, you know, industry intervention at the University of Michigan. And if, and she was talking to me about like the job opportunity they have at, the, at, at, Lanka. and I was like, Oh man, that looks so good. Like, I would like to know more about it. And I, I was like, maybe I can create a workshop, uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to help this, uh, you know, facilitate industry coming to talk to uh, University of Michigan in postdoctorals. So what I did is I created, and this is important to be able in, to be in position of leadership. When you're in a position of leadership, you have much more power and also more credibility where you can create stuff like I did. Uh, I created a workshop called What's That Job? It's a workshop where we invite industry and they just come and talk about the job opportunity they have in their uh, company. Yeah, there There, uh, there is sometimes a uh, university people that intervene like, I don't know, um, the head of research at Omega that came to the University of Iowa and tell us about his job. But this is the kind of thing that is relevant to us because this is attainable for us in 15 to 20 years. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not really representative of what you're going to do in industry uh, right now.
0: Yeah, so, when you enter, yeah,
1: yeah. So I told them I, I created this workshop called "What's That Job?" and the two roles are: the job has to be real and available right now, and it has to be available and for preferentially for postdoctoral fellows. Okay. And and now we have so we invited uh, multiple companies. We had Leica, we had uh, uh, BioLegend, we had Vector Builder. And they came with job titles and they explain exactly what, you, what you're going to do if you apply to the job tomorrow, basically.
0: Okay. And those, just to, just to clarify, those jobs were, are jobs that are open currently at that company. And then yes. you come in and then, it, okay, wow, this is really cool. How did the idea to about the name, uh, what's that, that job? Yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know. So I was, I was with, uh, it was over, uh when my wife was there we were talking about something and she showed me this uh, website to make uh, ads uh, and I was like oh that's awesome and I just I was like wondering like how how should I call the the workshop and yeah. she asked me basically what, what you're doing I don't know we just gonna present job and she's like well and, yeah. and then she came like, that was job basically
0: I love it I love it and I think it's important because you don't if you haven't been in industry you don't know what to expect you don't know what kinds of jobs you can go into an in industry what does that look like and as you said unfortunately universities in general don't offer this this opportunity to have that connection yeah to be and... able to learn about it
1: They're not. They're not. um, They try to cover themselves a lot. So uh, we're working right now with this workshop. It's a lot of politics, which I like. So that's fine. But um, we're working a very fine line where it has to stay in the professional development aspect of the workshop. It cannot become a promotional event, and it cannot become a recruitment event. Which is, you know, we're right in the middle of the those two. Wow you know, the, the workshop has to present uh, the product of the company and people are going to be like, oh, this is an ad for well, the company. It's like, no, you need to know what you're going to go work for. And that's their yeah. product, you know?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So no, they, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I think it's, I think it's really valuable. And, you know, on our end, Dr. GPC, our... Um, We do collect job ads, whether it's industry or academia, we are in the process of revamping our jobs page so that when people come, it's easier for them to figure out, is it an industry job or a postdoc or any other academic positions? But we also have uh, our own um, chief matchmaker and his name is Mark Schmeisel. And Mark is actually a recruiter full-time But he also started out as a scientist, uh, worked uh, in science, but on the business side and marketing side for a long time, and has been a recruiter for for quite some time. Um, And then in addition to that, we have not launched yet, but we're in the process of launching a new podcast and a new, I want to say not new, new but complementary ecosystem to the Dr. GPCR ecosystem, which is going to be open to all STEM uh, PhDs, mm-hmm. that's called life career job. And the idea is, well, the first thing we're doing is recording podcast episodes. I'd like to us to be able to release podcast episodes every two weeks, where we interview people who have transitioned from academia to industry. Um, some are consultants, some are working at companies, but really get an idea, a flavor of their track to where they are today but also to get an idea as to what does their day look like so yeah. that anyone listening can say oh I actually like to do this I would I would be interested to in doing this long term the way I see the platform is well actually it's a similar platform to the Doctor GPCR ecosystem you register we verify your identity we let you in there's an opportunity to talk into groups but I would also like to have a life career job university similar to the doctor gpc university where you can actually come and take a course course about how to write emails uh how to get ready for an interview what to dress how to dress up for an interview right now a lot of interviews are on zoom but you can't show up in a t-shirt to a job interview you know um mm. you have to know you have to get ready to answer um questions like tell me about a time where you had difficulty working with a co-worker but you had to finish the project on time and then you need to know how to answer those questions so the goal is really to bring in a bridge between academia and, and industry within the life career job because coming out of academia if you decide that academia is not for you you need a job uh, ideally you want to build a career in the context of your life, hence mm. the name. So um, very, was, very excited, very excited about that.
1: That's great. No, it, it is so important to have, it, it, we need information. We really need information. Yeah. Because it's so, we had this, we know the rumors, which are uh, industry is evil. If you go in there, you're stuck, you cannot come back. Those are not true at all. Okay. So, uh, We had BioLegend uh, two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and uh, the lady that came to do the presentation, uh, Kim Cardenas, she explained to us that if you go to BioLegend, you can either do a a job that I do, where you can go on on the road and help people troubleshoot their essays and have a little sales part, or you can also be a scientist at the bench, and you cannot publish the People don't realize you can still publish when you're in the industry. It's it's yeah. different, but it's still publication with your name as first author. So- absolutely,
0: absolutely. It becomes less important to publish, but you can. And I think mm-hmm. companies understand that they like it when they get to publish uh scientific articles because I think it shows to a larger audience, to a larger scientific community that the science that they do is real science just as you would do it in, in industry so this person was an application scientist
1: uh she was a field no she was a field scientist manager so she was overseeing a. Uh, okay. other people
0: okay so yeah but i think yeah it, and, and you if you if you've never been in this position to talk to these types of people you don't know what they do what does that look I, like
1: And, you know, like through this workshop, I encourage uh, people to volunteer for this workshop. What I told them, I tell them is, you're going to, I'm going to give you, you choose whatever industry you want to invite. And your role is to get in there, find someone that wants to come and bring them here. Yeah. Through that way, you network like crazy. You meet everybody in the company, not everybody in the company, a lot of people in the company, know your name. And if you are actually interested in applying for the job right after, I mean, they will know who you are.
0: And exactly that i think that there's a lot of value in there uh, in 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 doing that and this way you're reaching out to people without asking them to give you a job you just want information and a lot of companies are very much interested in getting to know potential candidates um potential customers you yeah. never know
1: it's a yeah. give and take we get information they get exposure basically and yeah. It works for everybody, and you know, and some people I it, you can do a lot in science, a lot is hidden uh, sometimes, often, and you don't just don't know it exists. And one of them is uh, art production, uh, you yes. Know.
0: So, show us what <laughs> you're yeah.
1: interested so in. So, I love to draw, I'd never have uh, the opportunity to do it, but here is uh, the oh, here we go, yeah. So, see. I design those little guys. So our our uh, mascot is this little brain. Mm-hmm. And basically I do a poster for every uh workshop we have. And uh, it. It also the, those drawing also interested uh in the the people that intervened in our workshop. They're like, Oh, who who did that? I would I would love to like talk to them. And it's like it's me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think this is wonderful, and and then the other question I had is, how do you advertise these? Are these in person only?
1: Yes. So the thing is, that's that's where you have to be in a position of leadership. So find every university has some for postdocs. So find the wrong one and, and go for it. Uh, we have, uh, as a chair of international affairs, uh, I can justify it being professional development for postdocs and use postdoc mailing lists. And the university has to give us an updated postdoctoral list at all time. So basically, I'm able to reach everybody, and then I also partner with different department at the university. So they do also internal uh, internal ad distribution for me when I have a uh, a speaker. Let's say Pfizer is gonna come, I'm gonna uh, ask the we are partner with the department of pharmacology. They're going to provide the room for free for us to have the workshop in. The uh the company is bringing refreshments. That's the only thing they're allowed to bring. Uh, food and drinks. Uh, they bring refreshments and we bring the organization and they do the advertisement in their work their department. So, you know, it's it's really fun to build up a workshop from the ground up because you you learn that you need to have a you know pieces so I need to have someone in the pharmacology department that I can relate to the physiology department that I can yeah. talk to et it is very fulfilling I really enjoy it
0: I, you can tell I can it comes through the camera here you can absolutely Good. tell and when you think about it the moment you decide what you want to do um, these skills that you've you've uh, acquired by creating these workshops by networking are absolutely transferable skills. You have to mention this. And then you could also think about how many people you invited, how many people you connected with, how many people came. And then very easily that bullet point in your resume doesn't say one thing without numbers, but here you can say over a period of X number of years, you have from the ground up created this workshop where you had X number of attendees x number of invited people and you know it allowed you to develop for example relationships at the university and beyond across multiple companies and then the multiple could be a specific number and mm. that no matter what job you're going for this already shows leadership skills it shows that you're a self-starter uh you're an artist as well with a little brain with the with the hat which i think is really cool you can even think about um whenever you do these workshops to get a t-shirt that has the like just the logo
1: i I might i might do that i might (laughs) have one for the workshop i usually wear that one when i represent the university so yeah yeah. but i have one with a little brain
0: yeah no i think this is really cool
1: no absolutely and uh yeah and everybody tells me uh those are excellent skills like don't forget to put them in your cv it's gonna help you like and yes. this is the kind of thing that nobody is telling you to do, but you have and mm-hmm. you doing it proactively shows a lot of, uh, of good confidence that everybody is looking for, basically.
0: Yeah. One and, other important thing is that you yes you're doing it proactively. Yes, nobody told you to do this, but you also have the support of your PI.
1: Yes, that's a, that's because it takes a lot of time. Uh, I would say like my research decreased by. In easy 35% and he's totally okay with that every time the thing is to be transparent right I'm not doing that behind his back every time yeah. I do something I'm like do you think I should do that I was on the search committee for a director for the director of a new office at the university never done it didn't know what to do and I was invited to be on the search committee so I asked my PI should I do it and he's like I mean yeah you should do it and it's good for you and but I'm already like doing a lot of things. So is it going to be a lot of time? It's like, yes, it's going to take you a lot of time, but it's good for your professional development to do this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's very nice to have a very supportive PI like that.
0: Yeah, I think it's very important as well, to, as you mentioned, to be up front and then to make sure that you can balance both things. Uh, because at the end of the day, you still need to publish, you still need to get your papers out, your work moving forward. But then this is a great opportunity and a great time to develop your other skills
1: and it, it you know and also like it brings up my uh, my energy for doing research because research you know after eight years is kind of like a job now even though i love yeah. it but it yeah. feels like more like a job now yeah. and having but, this site thing yeah. that i really enjoy makes me pump me up for research yeah
0: <laughs> yeah the nanobit assay is still a nanobit assay <laughs> yeah you know up until the time you get to find the molecule or you're looking for that you know, answer, um, it's just, quote, unquote, the nanopit assay.
1: Oh, the worst thing for me is transfection. I can't anymore.
0: I <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't done that in a while, so I don't, I can't, I can't comment on that. It's been three, four years now that I haven't worked in the lab.
1: Oh, this is the
0: worst. Yeah. Well, if you go to industry, depending on where you are, you can have a, a group that does that for you. Yeah. You know.
1: And I'm learning more and more about industry job. And honestly, I'm like 50-50 now. Uh, I don't want to be a PI. I'm a very poor grant writer, in my opinion. Uh, so I don't think I can be a PI. I can't. The idea of having to sustain... A team with my writing capability.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel you. I felt the same. I felt the same. So, but Mm -hmm. but it's a good thing as well that you know what you are, what you don't like, or what you you feel like you're not good at, because then it allows you to make the decisions according to your preferences and to your self knowledge.
1: Otherwise, you fall into the I don't know if you're aware of the Peter Principle. No. You you get promoted where uh, until you get incompetent, basically. You're less oh. promotional than you are incompetent at your job.
0: Wow. All right, let's uh, wrap wrap it up. Not that I don't enjoy chatting with you. I think we could be chatting for another couple of hours. Um, top three aha moments that you had as a scientist and that shaped your trajectory. Three, three. It can doesn't uh, have to be three, but anything that you feel like got you to where you are today you know the kink in the road
1: hmm. one of them is definitely when we first used the nanobeat assay when we actually got it to work back in the day it was a prototype that julian julian is excellent with working with industry so he got uh, promega so promega is the one that uh, commercialized uh yeah. he got promega to uh collaborate with us and basically we got the prototype version of Nanobit, and we were able to use it before everybody. I think there were yes. like two or three other lab that was able to use it, but uh, we made the bitarrestin recruitment assay through that uh, that collaboration and published with it. We were even, I think, Promega allowed us to like determine what name we wanted to give the the pieces and stuff like that. It was it was very very fun. Uh, nice don't quote me on that well, one maybe it's that just, one,
0: it's, it's how you remember it who knows yeah
1: exactly <laughs> I remember that we had a lot of freedom and it was it was a great experience and when we got to work and we could see the actual dynamic recruitment to the gpcr it was it was a great moment <laughs> my second one is definitely the gate model uh when and especially that I got a little bit of push pushback on it because mm-hmm. I, I understand I don't have any proof, but it's still a hypothesis. Yeah, and I I think I had enough data to to state it. Uh, but I got a little bit of pushback on it. And when when and Julian was with me when we saw the uh, even though I, so when we saw the um, I still don't I still don't remember his name when we saw the the talk of the 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 guy at Mayo Mayo that. Did the same discovery as me? Uh, Gonna
0: look it up while you talk. Yeah,
1: I, oh I, uh, yeah, I look at I look at Julian. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so apparently it's not nonsense, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and we hadn't published, so we hadn't published the paper yet. The the guy at the Mayo Clinic published it, and but I published the thesis with uh the 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 language in my thesis okay I don't think Julian saw it so it went through
0: smoothly (laughs) all right so this was the 20 uh Niagara on the lake right in 2022 I just locked in um Oh Scott Blanchard, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, actually, it's so interesting because I Saint Jude Children's Hospital. I'm sorry, it's not Mayo Clinic at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saint Jude. Yeah, yeah. Scott, I think he was. I think his talk was really phenomenal, and him and I were actually at the end of the in the back of the room right before his talk, um, and we were chatting. He's wonderful guy. Really, really awesome
1: yeah i mean you see like once again i didn't even talk to him when we were at the conference because i was still in my introvert space (laughs) Uh, i only grew out of it after that uh, but i emailed him
0: (laughs) he's he's wonderful he's wonderful and it was interesting i do remember his talk because he one it was a great talk super nice nice guy but also he in his talk he had mentioned that he is his lab develops tools and he's not a gpcr guy Mm -hmm. and he blew the i mean the 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 talk was phenomenal
1: it was very good
0: i agree that's awesome all right that was my last question uh alex thank you so much for for being here don't go anywhere we're gonna let people wonder what we talk about afterwards (laughs) just kind of a debrief um but thank you so much for your time it was really cool talking to you
1: thank you so much for having me it was fun
0: thanks Can I ask you a favor? Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Many of you come back and watch our videos, but aren't subscribed. Having more subscribers will help us get you more content. Also mark your calendars and join us for the inaugural Endocrine Metabolic GPCRs meeting taking place April 22nd to 23rd this year in Birmingham in the UK. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank our guests, our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Montserrat, Ivana, Andreina, and Balint. If you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials and subscribe to our monthly newsletter directly in the ecosystem. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Don't forget, we're also starting up the Dr. GPCR University, So if you'd like to join us for Dr. Karen Atkins' class, or you'd like to teach a class, please don't forget to reach out to us at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.